Hey, my dear patrons and listeners, I'd like to get more feedback on what listeners think of the podcast, and if you're willing to record an endorsement or comment for me to insert in the show. If you heard the last episode, you heard one of these endorsements. Basically, I'd like about a 10-second clip of, you're listening to the SRB podcast, I listen because blah, 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 whatever reason why you listen. You can feel free to send me other comments or questions, and I'll put those in the show as well. And if you send me a question, I'll try to record an answer. Feel free to record your endorsements, greetings, comments, and questions on your phone. You can send all comments and upload audio at srbpodcast.org slash contact. Once again, that's srbpodcast.org slash contact for all your comments, questions, and greetings. I hope to hear from you. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Every semester, we at Reese spotlight a few faculty affiliated with our center. So I've started to interview them about their work and put them on the podcast as a way to hear from our faculty and promote their work to a larger audience. This week's podcast is one of these faculty spotlights, an interview with Vasily Lukhadze. Vasily is a visiting lecturer in the political science department at Pitt, where he specializes in the politics of the South Caucasus, Central Asia, and Russia. In this interview, we talked about Vasily's experience growing up in Georgia as the Soviet Union collapsed, his work on colored revolutions and their aftermath, and what they say about state stability after regime change in post-communist states. Vasily Uchadze is a visiting lecturer of political science at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in comparative politics and international relations with an area focus on the former Soviet Union and post-communist Eastern and Central Europe. He's been a visiting scholar at Columbia University's Harriman Institute, where he researched new energy routes from the Caspian Basin to the European Union. And since 2012, he's been a political analyst at the Jamestown Foundation. Here's Vasily Urkhadze. Well, I just like to start by just having you uh, introduce yourself, tell us, you know, your name and and a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Well, thank you very much for inviting first inviting me. First of all, uh, my name is Vasily Ruhadze. Uh, well, I was born and raised in the country of Georgia, um, and I came to the United States many years ago. It's actually going to be twenty one years uh, in a week exactly since I moved to the United States from uh, from Georgia. Um, I got m- most of my education here in the United States in New York City. 
Um, that's where I did my master's degree at the University of um, at the City University of New York, and then I did my PhD in Ohio. So I'm a visiting lecturer now here at the University of Pittsburgh, teaching political science courses, enjoying it very much. Um, and um, so far, I'm a Pittsburgh resident. And what, what attracted you to study political science or in politics of uh, Georgia, but also the wider region? Um, the generally, I always had um, attraction to the history and politics. My the, my undergraduate degree in Georgia actually was joint degree in history and political science. So um, I don't think that I ever really wanted to do anything else except the history and political science. That was maybe movie making, but that was kind of out of out of reach for many years. Other than that, I, the politics always interested me, um, taking into consideration the fact that the Georgian history and the politics was pretty dramatic. Um, since I remember myself walking in this earth, this earth, Georgian politics always has been very dramatic. Um, so that was pretty much the main trigger, which kind of pushed me in that direction. And uh, um, I grew up, um, I was born in the Soviet Union in 1976. Um, so uh, pretty much I witnessed um, Soviet Union in its last decades. I still was a very young teenager, but nevertheless. Um, so this entire upheaval, this uh, huge, really cataclysmic upheaval kind of went through in front of me. Um, and the Georgia kind of um, ended up under this rubble. So that pretty much determined my, my choice, the focus on former, not, not only Georgia, but I focus also on the South Caucasus, Ukraine, um, Russia, Central Asia, and Eastern Europe generally interests me a lot. Um, so the pretty much, I think, the events which unfolded, which kind of dragged me in. Um, I spent about three years in a Georgian civil war. Georgia had a civil war from 1992-1991-1992-1995. Um, so that determined my political choice very much. You know, most of the time when we hear, we, we re, whether we read about it or we hear testimonies about the collapse of the Soviet Union, we rarely hear it from the periphery, you know, the, from, the, from the, 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 the republics. So how would you, and even how do you convey this to your students, the different experience being in Georgia, especially the fact that, you know, Georgia experiences civil war after, right. uh, how did that, uh, how does that experience um, or how do you how do you understand that experience compared to how it's usually told? Um, very good question. Um, there are two versions of the collapse of the Soviet Union. One version is a Western version, another version is, like you said, kind of a peripheral insider version, so to speak. Um, I think it's it was a U.S. Uh, um, um, Secretary of State James Baker who said that United States, the Cold War, generating the Soviet Union, um, went away with a whimper rather than with a bank. Um, and I understand what he says. I mean, that's how it felt like and has, that's how it looked like from the West, but it was not peaceful at all. Um, and the millions, tens of millions of Soviet citizens, former Soviet citizens actually, actually are the live uh, representations and it, proves, and it proves that the Soviet Union, collapse of the Soviet Union was nothing but peaceful. Um, there were, were many, many the ethnic wars in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, um, uh, Central Asia, the huge ethnic um, uh, upheaval, um, and the civil wars in Georgia and Tajikistan. Um, instability, the horrible uh, political instabilities, the entire debasement of the social classes, um, which caused the massive uh, migration. Like Georgia alone lost roughly about 1.8 million people. Um, like for instance, Georgian population uh, by the census of 1989, the Soviet conducted census was five and a half million people. And right now, Georgia has, um, um, I'm not sure exactly, but somewhere between three and a half, uh, uh, 
5, 3.7 million. So loss is immense. Um, so uh, the social dislocation, political dislocation was absolutely staggering and it absolutely did not feel like peaceful event. Um, even though the Soviet, uh, the leader of the Soviet Union got the peace, Nobel Peace Prize for that. Um, but Soviet citizens could not relate to any of that. It was very different on personal level and on societal level. So how has this, um, you know, talk about a bit what your your work um, focuses on and even how that political experience, that personal experience uh, informs it. Well, when I teach and when I research, my personal stories are always in there. Um, I kind of feel like uh, my research, my teaching is not complete. Like I, it feels like I do disservice to the political science if I do not include it in there. Um, and sometimes um, um, but people's stories actually make the better da data for, for these kinds of work. So it's always there. My personal experience has always influenced um, my, my research, uh, the things that I write, um, articles, the books, um, it is, I would say, the formalized theoretical version of my, my personal life, almost political personal life. So what do you focus on in your academic work? Um, on my, the generally my teaching and my, uh, my teaching is broader than my research. Uh, my teaching is pretty much about, um, everything related to the regime changes, political transitions, uh, democratic consolidation, regime consolidation. Um, like as, since I arrived, uh, um, uh, to Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh, this has been third year already. Um, I taught, um, courses in the politics of revolutions. Um, this semester I'm teaching the politics of leadership, um, energy politics, which in, in that region, Central Asia and the general Eurasian region, which is undivided part of the political development in that region. Um, also, I'm a comparativist generally, I would say I'm a, I'm a comparative politics specialist, but um, I also do some IR, international relations, um, the work I teach several courses, Cold War, um, US foreign policy. As far as my research is concerned, um, I'm mostly focused um, on post-uprising regime stability, uh, why some regimes, why some governments lose power so quickly after the public uprisings. Um, the, for instance, right now, my upcoming book, my manuscript is under review by the University of Michigan Press. So that particular one is about why <clears throat> uh, post-Orange Revolution, post-Rose um, um, Revolution, and post-Tilip Revolution regimes fell so quickly, specifically why Ukrainian and the Kyrgyz regimes fell so quickly while the Georgian regime lasted longer. Um, and ethnic conflicts, I focus on ethnic conflicts and state building generally, what factors uh, strengthen the bolster the regime um, and the state, um, and what actually prevent the state to emerge stronger. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those things. Um, you know, like you said, you, you, you've, part of your focus is this comparative look at the, the wave of so-called colored revolutions from the 2000s into the 2000, well, I guess up until Ukraine in 2014 to, to a large extent. So how do you understand these revolutions? Are they revolutions or do you, you know, how would you right. explain them? It's an excellent question. It depends which kind of definition of a revolution we're going to believe, right? There is a traditional, uh, which is for some reason is considered as a maximalist uh, definition, which has nothing to do with maximalism. And there is more new definition, right, of a revolution. I'm with more traditional definition. So with the traditional definition of a revolution, none of these uprisings, these color revolutions, whether in Ukraine, we're talking about 2003, 2004, 2003 Georgian Rose Revolution, 
uh, Ukrainian Orange Revolution in 2004 and uh, Kyrgyzstan's revolution in 2005. Um, so according to the traditional de definition of a revolution, none of them were revolutions because they should bring, revolution must bring the fundamental social and political change. And most importantly, it should bring elite change. And none of these um, revolutions really experienced anything like that. In, in fact, what happened was it simply recycled the elites and the people who led these revolutions, um, they actually were part and parcel of the previous the regime. They just defected when they saw that the regime was not going to stay in power for that long. So this is a typical um, uh, explanation for Henry Hale theory about right. paternal presidentialism, um, uh, right? So it's hard to call these revolutions. There were popular uprisings. I think the more precise political the science and historical term probably would be popular uprisings. Um, they were not uh, uh, Bloodies were bloodless popular uprisings, not necessarily very peaceful, but generally speaking, they definitely would not qualify as a revolution. So do you, like going off of uh, Henry Hale's understanding of this as a patronal presidentialism, you know, he makes this comparison where what makes the, you know, Ukraine or Kyrgyzia or Georgia different from, say, like Russia is that in Russia they have consolidated a very strong executive, right. whereas in the, in the other post-Soviet states, the these uprisings are opportunities, or even the since a lot of them occur around elections, are opportunity right. for elite, you know, um, contests. So right. do you do you, do you subscribe to this? What do you think yeah. about his idea? I mean, he has his work is just excellent. Uh, the, as far as no, presidential, but only presidential is concerned, uh, one of the reasons why these uprisings became possible in Ukraine, Georgia, and Kyrgyzstan was the Western pull factor, mm -hmm. uh, because Russia was not that much dependent on Western influence, right. like financial influence, and these countries, these three countries where it took place. Um, uh, regimes were weaker, and they uh, the, the the factor of political legitimacy figured in factored in, in on much larger scale. Um, so th the regimes were not that consolidated, especially in Georgia and Kyrgyzstan, and even Ukraine, which is much bigger country than Georgia, either of those two countries. Russia was a different story. Russia, just to use the crude language, never needed the West. The Russian regime never needed the West for its political legitimation. So I think that is one of the main differentiating factors there. Why did not occur in Russia? And and how do you in in terms of Georgia and and Kyrgyzstan and to some extent Ukraine? How does the ethnic politics figure into into this? I've done research on this. Um, um, I don't I don't think that the ethnic factor figured that much um, in any of those because they, they, there are some other factors which kind of cancelled off the possible outliers. Uh, so I don't think the ethnic factor had much, if anything, to do there. The key factor was the existence of some modicum of civil society and a semi-free press from the government, um, which was not in Russia on such a large scale. Um, so I think that was the main differentiating factor, and then other factors kind of figured in later on. And since a lot of your your research focuses on the post conditions after these these events, how do you evaluate them after you know once the the, the kind of political transition of sorts, or once the revolution kind of settles down? How do you evaluate the situation after? Uh, actually, um, post uprising 
time is more important than uprising itself. And this is something which is more or less underestimated in political science. Um, these uprisings uh, um, cause immense public expectations, just like any political upheaval. There is a reason why people take to the streets or why they risk their lives or whatever. It depends on, on how the revolution uprising occurs. So uh, the, it, it brings huge political expectations. Um, which these new regimes need to deliver on, or, or they just simply face the political annihilation. And in some cases, if the case is the drastic, maybe even physical annihilation, depends on the country and the, and the historical background. So these regimes, new regimes, face immense tasks to pretty much rebuild the society from anew, from the scratch. And, and in fact, what, in my opinion, defines uprising, whether it's an uprising or a revolution, is actually how fundamental the changes after the new regime comes to the power are. So uh, the, relating, going back to the three countries, Ukraine, Iristan, and Georgia, why the Georgian regime lasted so so long, much longer? They lasted for nine years, while Bakir regime barely survived five years, the same is true with, with Ukrainian President Yushchenko. Yeah. Uh, the key reason was that the Georgian regime actually did manage to build more or less viable state institutions and deliver public goods, right. something which was the key demand of people because Georgia was simply, it was not really failed state, but it definitely qualified as a weak state. Right. So was the case in Kyrgyzstan. And they handled – they did a fairly good job dealing with the corruption issue. Exactly. Bribery. Yeah, the petty bribery. bribery. Corruption, I would say – I always tell my students corruption is a big house. Nice. Bribery is a little room in this, this corruption house of corruption. Um, the, there was still corruption. Georgians called it elite corruption. Up top, it actually became even more organized in the hands of the new regime. But they definitely cracked down on the bribery. And the average person on the street felt that because they should no longer bribe the police, no longer bribe the, the registrar's office, and on and on and on. Like this, the, the small-scale bribery really vanished in Georgia, and country had huge achievements in um, uh, liberalizing business, education system, especially higher education system, was fundamentally revamped. So there were a lot of changes. So if the regime meets the expectations, which is very hard in I would say roughly 90% of the cases of post-popular uprising regimes, they never meet the expectations because they are huge. Mm -hmm. So they quickly lose the popular support. What Saakashvili's regime's ma regime managed there is it kept at least uh, the base uh, on its side, at least half of the population or maybe in, in low 40s, which means a lot. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine, they simply lost the popular support absolutely and the regimes fell. G considering the 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 western uh poll um that you mentioned earlier when when these uh uprisings occurred and the the expectations of the population are so great and it's in a situation where as you said it's very difficult for these states to deliver does the what role does the west play not just in the imagination of the expectations but the the elites and trying to you know I mean they have to go somewhere for aid. It's not of course going to be Russia for obvious reasons, but and the West of course kind of tends to throw its support behind these. Uh, so what role does the West play in all of this? A lot um, it depends how we look at it, like how much they can play or how much they do play, and how much they play by just doing nothing. Um, they actually helped a lot. 
Um, they, in other words, United States, let's focus on the United States. Um, United States uh, helped a lot, not only Georgian regime, but the Ukrainian regime. Actually, it helped more Ukrainian regimes than the Georgian regime. The first of all, political legitimacy, simply endorsement of the regime of the government from a superpower is immense political capital, which they can cash in if they if they act properly and if they know how to cash in this international political legitimacy. On top of that, financial help is very, very important, which United States did provide to Georgia, uh, to, uh, to to lesser extent to Kyrgyzstan, but to Georgia and especially to Ukraine. But always the question is how the regimes use it. Um, uh, again, for instance, Ukraine got more financial support after the uh, 2004 uprising, Orange Revolutions, than Georgia did. But Georgia used it more than Ukraine did. So it always matters a lot if the institutions are ready to absorb it in a meaningful way. It's it's more like the sick man using the medicine. How you use it? Do you misuse it or you use it? Um, so institutions always matter, and this is the case in developing world everywhere. Right. Uh, you can use $100 million in to a larger extent if you have the operable, the functioning state institutions than half a billion dollars if they do not function. So it, another thing, though, too, is that amongst in all of these these uprisings, these colors revolutions, there are also national revolutions. Um, some, you know, sometimes there's more explicit nationalist rhetoric, but it, it is a, a they tend to also contain expectations of sovereignty, particularly from Russia. It, it's still embroiled in um, these states finding their identity in a post-Soviet situation. Is there a concern? Uh, because of the reliance on Western support, is there a concern of a new dependency on the West? Um, is, oh, definitely, yes, there is always. Um, um, none of these societies, um, none of the, the former the post-Soviet societies are absolutely homogeneous societies, right? They have their legacies, their cultural, right. ideological leg legacy. So even if the large segments of society entirely support these uprisings, they have their own opinions. There are factionalism. There is a lot of factionalism going on still there. Um, so, yes, even now, there is, despite all the fact that, let's say, the Georgia wants to join a NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, European Union, there are concerns about new dependence on it. Um, so there is always the call for a new way, like middle way balancing between the Russia, Russia and the West. Um, and yes, you, you mentioned it absolutely correctly, um, that these also are national revolutions because they always follow this massive disappointment with the national statehood. Mm -hmm. uh, people leaving the Soviet Union always thought that there was a new um, um, revival waiting for their countries and societies, which never happened. So uh, these, these revolutions, these uprisings at the same time are the explosions of the disappointment, um, kind of hearkening back to the old glory, national glory, right. mythology. Um, so definitely that element is always there. Let's let's talk about that because you've also, as you mentioned a little bit ago, uh, you worked on issues of ethnicity and sovereignty and secession within in the in the Caucasus and the South Caucasus. So talk about uh, the way the role of ethnicity and desires for secession um, play and and how these frozen conflicts also continue to linger in the region. It is uh, it is extremely complex. Uh, the problem, and it is a result of very complex process. These are not only secessionist uh, movements; they are, but there are huge geopolitical 
uh, elephants roaming around there. Like, let's start with Georgia, right? Georgia has two regions, uh, which are separatist regions, Abkhazia in the northwest of the country. So this small country size of roughly about South Carolina is fragmented in three parts now. So Abkhazia is one secessionist region, another one is South Ossetia. The problem with these two regions is that ethnic minorities represent the minorities even within those regions. I mean, generally speaking, secessionist regions, uh, ethnic minorities are at least majority within their regions. So in order to make up for this, um, um, how to say, the weakness, the Russia stepped in. So we cannot understand post-Soviet ethnic conflicts without Russia because they are part and parcel of Russia's geopolitical strive to stop the expansion of NATO to the east, something which has been debated in the, in the West since the, the Cold War ended. Um, so the Russia is pretty much using these secessionist regions, Abkhazia, Georgia, uh, South Ossetia and Georgia, and now Ukraine, the whole war, annexation of Crimea and this conflict in Donbass, um, as kind of a preventive mechanism to halt, finally, the expansion of, of NATO. Um, it is not just uh, the, the desire for domination. Of course, it is there, but the, it's a main mechanism. These are, like I always compare them to the hostages. Um, it's exactly the same way because um, if we recall the NATO Article 5, if the country is at war with any outside power, all the members of the NATO are automatically at war. So admitting the country which has such a massive problem, occupied territories, pretty much has no chance of joining it. Now, there are some debates in NATO that Georgia could be admitted uh, and temporarily they can make it as kind of like temporary measures that that article would not extend on Abkhazia and South Ossetia, but it caused a huge uproar in Georgia as something like a sell-off, surrounder to Russia. Right. But so far, the Russians' policy has been pretty effective to halt the expansion. It is working. Yeah, I mean, they've made it so, you know, Georgia and uh, and Ukraine, they've made it so such a complex and difficult situation that the Europeans don't want to want to even touch it. They're not interested in getting involved in, in that. Yeah, ab absolutely. It became a toxic ball. Right. You cannot even touch it anymore, <laughs> let alone um, uh, unpack it and, and solve it. Um, so yes, in a devious way, it, it perfectly worked. Um, um, and, and we'll see. This is this. Um, it, it's looked at as regional conflicts, but any regional in, in age of globalization, I don't think that anything is regional anymore. It definitely has a chance of wider uh, the potential of causing a wider instability in the region. So how do because these small states, of course, they they are you know as you said they you know ideally a third way would potentially be the it's difficult to achieve but in terms of their you know situation they they have to carve out on the one hand they can't ignore Russia for a variety of reasons it's it's on the border it's a major trading partner there's a lot of diaspora there's migration etc cetera, etc cetera. but you you also have the pull of the west so what role does Russia play in a, I mean in addition to what you just said what other role does it play and how do states like Georgia for example, try to manage that relationship? Um, everybody in that region, every politician, even the ones who uh, uh, kind of package them as anti-Russian politicians, everybody realizes that without uh, normalizing ties with Russia, it's impossible to survive as a political party and to survive as, as a nation. So they do realize that. Uh, the problem, I'm not trying to put the blame on one side, but the problem is that Russian really never said what they really want. 
Um, um, a Georgian political diplomatic, the, the corps, I, I've spoken to them many, many times. I had a lot of interaction with Ukrainian diplomats, the politicians, and they all from different factions, they all repeat the same things that they do they do try to talk to Russia to figure out to hammer out it like for instance in 2005 I don't remember the year exactly uh, foreign minister of Georgia actually c contacted the uh, foreign minister of Russia Lavrov and offered them that Georgia would shelve the plans to join in NATO if they um, uh, withdrew from Abkhazia if they recognized Georgia's territorial integrity um, it was pretty much giving the Russia carte blanche they never really made any reciprocal steps. And same is true with Ukraine. So we're talking about like Finlandization, like neutralization of these two countries, right? The Russia recognizing their, their territorial integrity, kind of giving back them these territories. But I don't think that they do want that. So what what do you think they want? Um, it's... It, the, the Putin is very camouflaged. He never shows his uh, his deck, his cards. He, he keeps it very close to his his chest. Um, uh, there, there are many plans. There are many speculations. Like, for instance, as far as the Ukraine is concerned, he wants it all. Does he want it entirely? Does he want the permanent conflict in Ukraine uh, as a bargaining chip with with uh, uh, with uh, with the West, um, in Georgia in 2008, he could take, he could capture Tbilisi, the capital of Tbilisi. He stopped, so it's very hard to understand also what he what he really wants. Does he want to just simply merge these territories? Right. I, I, it's hard to say. That's assume that's assuming that he knows what he wants. Right? Yeah. I mean, no, he's he's uh, he's not a confused politician by any stretch of Im imagination. He he knows always. That's. Oh, he always knows what he wants. That's one of the reasons why he stayed in power for 20 years. Right. In Russia, that's quite of a fit. I'm, I'm far from suggesting that he is confused. He does not know. He knows very well. But it's very hard to read his strategy, his long-term strategy. Does he want these countries as just part and parcel of his Eurasian Union? Uh, because these offers of neutralization were simply almost like rejected. Well, that brings us to, of course, the, the news that have, has come out in the last couple of days of what's happening in Russia and the constitutional measures that Putin has put forward. And of course, dealing with the big issue, and that is what happens in 2024 when his next uh, presidential term is up. So what what did you make? What are you making of, of the recent news? Um, it's a good question. I would more focus... Um, I th I'm not sure which Western politician said it. I think it was um, uh, Winston Churchill who said, in order to read the, read the Soviet politics, you have to look under the rug, which kind of a bulldog is thrown right. out uh, under the rug. Um, I think I would more focus on his appointment of a prime minister. I think that is more telling, well, his nomination of a prime minister, which I would say is a pretty much a foregone conclusion. I think that nomination is way more important to read into what he is planning. So his, these new guys... Um, a new candidate's uh, biographies were telling. He's a technocrat who led the tax department. He has no Siloviki background. He's not from these power agencies, right? KGB, Def Department of Defense, which um, usually has been the, the Putin's main pool of intellectual bureaucratic resources. So this new candidate is uh, the bureaucrat with very digital background. So that already tells what he's planning. He's just appointing loyal technocrats. Mm -hmm. That's not a step of the president who is going away. Right. Um, this is probably already time. It's 2020. He's four years away in order to turn the power in. If he had that plan, already the successor should be around the corner. 
And I do not think that the prime minister, the current nominee, is a successor. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that tells more mm-hmm. what is happening. Exactly. And he's been he's been uh, promoting these, especially if you look in the regional politics, a lot of these technocrats, these younger generation technocrats that don't come from the security services and more importantly, aren't tied to anybody but him, right? And, and the region. So we're seeing this kind of, you know, to go back to a Soviet term, a cadre renewal of sorts. And and it's a really interesting move in terms of exactly like these people who are very good bureaucrats, they've proven to Putin, it seems that they're very good administrators. Um, and it does raise a lot of questions. Well, what is all of this for? But it, 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 absolutely. Exactly. I, Putin is not the kind of the chess figure who will make his more years before. I mean, let, let's recall 2008, right? There were right. lots of speculations what he will do. Yeah, up until the last minute. Up until the last minute, nothing really happened, right? And nobody really knew that Medvedev would become the president, would be nominated a president. Same happened when he came back to power. Um, the Russian oligarchic elites were in turmoil. They, they were not sure what was happening. So I think he's preparing the ground for something. And I think that, that something is staying in power for in some kind of a form. Yeah. But we will see. I don't want to spe- speculate too much. But judging from the past, yeah. I think that's where we are headed to. And that seems to be the growing consensus is that, you know, nobody nobody is saying that Putin's going anywhere. The, the question is, in what form is he staying? And that's going to be, you know, we're going to find that out, of course, whenever it happens. <laughs> Besides yeah. that, you know, we, we are it's, – it's a lot of speculation. Um, now you uh, you're going into politics, uh, into Georgia. Um, so what's the political climate right now in Georgia? What are some of the main issues that uh, concern the country? Um, uh, Georgia has been in in near permanent political crisis for last um, I would say good 13, 14 years um, since 2006, 2007, and I think generally this last 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union has been one extended political crisis. Um, well, the right now, um, Georgia is ruled by a new political party called Georgian Dream, which came to the power in 12, uh, 2012, um, defeating uh, incumbent president Mikhail Saakashvili's United National Movement. Um, so they've been in power for seven, eight years. They came in power on huge promises of social, economic, and political renewal. Uh, people were pretty fed up with Saakashvili's regime, despite of the fact that he contributed a lot to the state building process. Um, there was a lot of corruption, a lot of the gross human rights violations. Um, so people voted uh, for the new party in a landslide, but they failed to deliver. Uh, so a- instead of the move to the forward, instead of progress, what we ended up with was the oligarchic rule. Um, this party, the Georgian Dream Party, is entirely funded, Ge- Georgians call it the pocket party, pocket political party, entirely funded by one person. His name is Bidzina Ivanishvili, who is a Georgian oligarch who made um, roughly about five, six, accumulated five, six billion dollars in Russia in those chaotic 1990s, uh, which is not a good sign to begin with. But he moved to Georgia in the beginning of 2000s uh, when the Rose Revolution took place. So he was very close to the regime. It was even believed that he pretty much bankrolled the regime for a number of years. Um, then he fell out with Saakashvili, as it usually happens in Georgian and post-Soviet politics, and he founded this new party in 2011, 2012, and pretty much pushed out Saakashvili. They had a lot of personal animosities also. 
Um, but he's pretty much running the country as a personal fiefdom. Um, Georgians joke that the uh, world has the only oligarch which has his own country as a fiefdom. Um, and of course, that that kills any prospects of what we call the democratic development, despite of the fact that it was pretty much the first peaceful transfer of power in post-Soviet Georgia, which was a good thing. It was a good step. Uh, but they failed to deliver. We have a lot of nepotism right now. We have a lot of the, the corruption. State institutions are failing again. Um, um, economists pretty much has been stagnant. The growth has been around 3 3 and the 5%, which is pretty good for France and United States, large economies, developed economies. But for Georgian economy, it's a stagnation. Um, migration has continued unabated. Um, the brain drain is still the fact in Georgia. Uh, so country is in really, really bad shapes. Bad shapes. There is lots of apathy. Um, I would say even agony. Um, people simply no longer believe in only any political party. Um, so when we get these polls, roughly about 50, 55, 52 percent of um, uh, respondents uh, express their complete distrust towards any political party in Georgia, which is a very bad thing for democracies. That's not. That's how democracy works. Democracy works on the enthusiasm, on the engagement of, of the people. Um, so Georgia is ready for a renewal. Georgia is ready for a new force, new political party, third party. Um, and there are lots of expectations about it. Uh, but at the same time, it's a big apathy. So any new force which will step into this political climate going to have a lot of work ahead in order to kind of um, galvanize the society. Mm -hmm. So you, you're becoming a, a chairperson of a new political party, the National Reformist Movement. So what is what is this party all about, and what do you hope to accomplish? Um, as this is the this is a brand new party. Um, uh, it's a brand new party on which I've been working uh, with my friends here in diaspora and in Georgian student movement for uh, over a year, maybe about two years. So they asked me to to, to lead the party, to chair, to be the chairman of the party. Um, um, well, uh, it's it's a reformist party, um, as the name also says. So our main goal, the first of all, is to create alternative, to create viable alternative um, in Georgia, so people can have the choice. Um, right now, the Georgian politics is entirely dominated by the ruling party, the Georgian. Uh, dream, which is not very popular, but nevertheless, they pretty much control all the main leverages of power. Um, and the main opposition party is United National Movement, which was in power, and they managed to maintain the key infrastructure. And of course, they both have a lot of finances, one from oligarchy backing and another, another, another opposition party from the former political connections. Uh, but they are not trusted by, by the generally by the wider Georgian public. So our goal, the first of all, of course, is to create alternative, to create, to kind of establish the institutional party, uh, third party, where at least the portion, the section of the Georgian electorate um, can stand on, rely on, and 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 uh, have uh, the meaningful, substantive the choice among among these two parties. And finally, um, so what's in store for yourself in the future? Do you see yourself becoming a politician? Um, <laughs> well, as, as, as we say, never say never, but right now I don't have such plans. Um, this is more of a temporary assignment. I'm going in Georgia in May um, for five, six months um, to help establish the party, um, get it rolling. We have to establish several branches um, in the capital and, and in the main regions. Um, and... Um, um, start the electoral campaign. So the main goal at this point is just to help the party get into the parliament, mm -hmm. um, at least as a, as a faction. 
Um, uh, in order to, for that to happen, the party needs at least five members in, in Georgian parliament, which is 150 member large parliament. Um, what percentage of the vote do they need? Three percent. Georgia, Georgia has 3% threshold. Oh. There were talk, talks very about, low. it's very low. There were talks about 0% and they, the government actually, they promised it, but then they defaulted on their promise um, just a couple of months ago, which co- caused a lot of protests in Georgia, street protests, but they kind of went away because no political party was able to capitalize on that. Um, so we have to overcome at least 3%, which is roughly about 70,000 votes. Um, it does not sound much, but for a new party, it's still quite a bit of work. Um, so my function is to use whatever the political science knowledge I have in order to get the party the going and the campaign going um, and at least manage that. Uh, we're far from suggesting that we're going to take power in, in fall 2020. That's when the Georgia has right. um, uh, elections in October 2020. Uh, but I think we have pretty realistic chances to get the, the party into the parliament. Um, and that's pretty much it for me. I, I love my job at the University of Pittsburgh. I enjoy very much. I love I love this country. I've been here for 21 years, right, which is right. pretty much overwhelming majority of my conscious life. So I love my work. I love my students. So I want to stay, stay on that, come back and continue my work here. That was Vasily Uhadze, a visiting lecturer of political science at the University of Pittsburgh, specializing in comparative politics and international relations, with an area focus on the former Soviet Union and post-communist Eastern and Central Europe. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.